We have been studying Matthew chapter 5, and we have learned that Jesus said to his disciples that they were to be salt and light. They were to be a source of a means of preserving this world from evil, and also be a source of instruction concerning truth and righteousness. Jesus was accused of the Pharisees of coming to abolish or to destroy the law. Jesus said, I'm not come to abolish or to destroy the law or the prophets, but I have come to fulfill. And then Jesus said to the disciples something that was incredibly startling. For Jesus said to the disciples that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. That came like a bombshell. It was an affront to the Pharisees, but an amazement to the disciples. For they looked at the Pharisees as being very righteous people. They were looked up to. They were honored. They were exalted. They were pillars in the society. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness goes beyond, is superior to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus then goes on to provide us with six examples of how the righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees taught was inferior to the true righteousness that God demands. Their interpretation of the law was faulty. So he provides six examples. The first example that he gives is concerning murder. In Matthew 5.21, he said, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The common denominator in the six examples that Jesus gives is that in all of them, the emotion is as unacceptable as the action that it produces. Jesus had taught, for out of the heart comes thought, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, and slanderers. And so God is concerned not just with the action, but with the desire that comes from the heart of mankind. Today, the focus is on the command, thou shalt not commit adultery. So Jesus now is going to explain what constitutes adultery and how that the understanding goes far beyond that which the Pharisees had provided. The Pharisees had not gone far enough in their teaching or in their practice 
regarding adultery. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, it reads, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was said, whoever sends away his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the case of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what constitutes adultery? At the heart or the core of adultery is a lack of exclusive love for one's spouse. It's a manifestation of unfaithfulness. And we can be unfaithful in a variety of ways. This passage opens up adultery in ways that the Pharisees never thought about it, and I believe probably in ways that perhaps we have not thought about it enough. There are two main thoughts about adultery in this passage, one having to deal with this certificate of divorce, the other having to do with the lustful passions. I originally was going to do this all in one segment because they go together and I wanted to demonstrate that, hopefully in a powerful way, but the longer and more I worked on this, uh, I thought I'm going to probably divide this up into two messages. It seemed like a lot to try to cover in any degree of uh, thoroughness in just 45 minutes. So, in fact, I am going to divide this into two messages this morning, looking at the first half Today, Lord willing, the second half next week. So today is part one. Today is part one. Jesus is going to explain what constitutes adultery. First, Jesus taught that sexual impurity extends to the heart and constitutes adultery. Sexual impurity extends to the heart and constitutes adultery. Jesus condemns not just the act of sin, but the desireful, but the sinful desire that provides the motivation for sin. Jesus condemns the thoughts which stimulate and produce sexual arousal. Jesus said in verse 27, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Whoever looks with lust upon her. I'd like to begin by saying that lust is a broad term that speaks to many things, not just sexual desires, and impurity. Jesus condemns lust in a number of different ways. I think that's one of the ways that we limit this text 
in, in an inappropriate manner. I'm going to get into that next week. But, for example, part of the law, part of the, the, when the Ten Commandments are given, it says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's riches. So this coveting, wanting a person's spouse, wanting a woman inappropriately, is a part of that, that lusting. So it could be even more than just sexually. It could even be that you would love to have somebody else's spouse because they're godly. And you are fed up with your spouse because they are ungodly. And you fantasize in your mind what it would be like to be married to this godly man or this godly woman. That actually would fall under this prohibition of wanting what's not yours and taking away from others what belongs under them. But that's more about next week. But certainly, it includes the idea of impure sexual thoughts. And uh, that is what I'm going to focus on this morning. But what is being addressed here is intentionality. Notice verse 28. But I say unto you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Those are strong words. It's a tough message to hear. So I want to unpack that to try to get at it as clearly as we can. The first thing that we have to understand is what is being addressed here is intentionality. Notice in verse 28, But I say unto you that everyone who looks on a woman, and now these words, to lust for her. King James, to lust after her. NIV, who looks at a woman lustfully. Lustfully. The issue is not here about looking at a woman. The issue is what is motivating that looking. What are you doing when you look at a woman? And what is wrong is to lust after that woman, to want to have an impure impure, um, sexual relationship to that person or to be aroused or stimulated sexually. So a man is not to intentionally look upon a woman to lust. The psalmist David said in Psalm 101, I will sing of loving kindness and justice to thee, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When when wilt thou come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. So David says that he is going to conduct himself privately. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I'm not just going to be one thing publicly and another thing privately. But I'm going to be consistent in my relationship with you. And then he says this, I will set no worthless things or wicked things before my eyes. I will not place anything wicked or worthless before my eyes. Certainly, this addresses the issue of pornography. The word pornography comes from the Greek word pornea, which is a broad term for all kinds of immoral sexual behavior. And the idea is that we are not going to look at 
that which is going to promote any kind of immoral sexual behavior or is going to arouse us in a way that is impure. So a desire to look at pornography for sexual arousal and stimulation is sinful. Now notice I said it's not looking at pornography that is sinful. It is the, it is the desire to look at pornography. So even if you don't look, but you'd want to look, is sinful. And I said that incorrectly. It's not just that looking at it is sinful. It's also the desire to look at it is sinful. The issue is of fantasizing about being with someone else. And it doesn't stop there. It isn't just about what we see. Many times it's said that men and women are turned on uh, by different sexual triggers. I don't particularly want to get into an argument about that this morning. You may agree or disagree with that, and uh, fine. But uh, those who make a distinction talk about how men are are sexually aroused more by what they see, and uh, women are more uh, sexually aroused by their perceptions by by what they fantasize about. I don't know whether that's true or not. But whichever the case may be, it is equally unacceptable before God. It doesn't matter if you are looking at a picture or you're reading a romance novel that causes you to want to be with someone other than your spouse. All of it is condemned. All of it is unacceptable. Anything that produces a physical or emotional attraction to another person is forbidden. Now, I want to get into what is the more difficult element. For I said it is about the intentional looking upon an individual to feed or satisfy a sexual desire or urge. So what about an unintentional look? What about the passing thought that comes into your mind? I'd like to work through a passage of Scripture with you. If you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Probably a story that you're pretty familiar with. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We had just read in Psalm 101, David said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. He will not intentionally look upon a woman to lust. But what about that which is unintentional? I am starting with the presupposition that David had an unintentional look at Bathsheba. Notice 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent 
Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. It would appear to me that David is having a restless night. He wakes up, and uh, what is told to us is that the troops are out to battle. And I imagine that David is thinking about the battle. He's thinking about a lot of different things. But anyway, he gets up, and he goes up to the rooftop and begins to walk around. And it says in verse 2, And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So I'm submitting to you that David did not go up on the rooftop seeking to spy out his neighbors. I don't think that David went up there looking and hoping that he was going to find a woman taking a bath. I don't think he had a telescope on his rooftop in which he's scanning around hoping to find a naked woman. I think he's up and he's walking around and he looks and there is a naked woman. So far, David is guiltless. But now comes the problem. It was unintentional. He did not place her there. However, his looking did become intentional. For it says in verse 2, the woman was very beautiful in appearance. I think that is more than just a statement of fact. I think that is more than just for our understanding of who Bathsheba was. She was a very beautiful woman. But I also think that that was a conclusion that David drew. He looked at her and said, wow, she's really pretty. That motivated him to sinful actions. Sinful action number one, verse three. So David sent and inquired about the woman. He didn't dismiss her. He didn't put it out of his mind. He is a married man. It would be wrong for David to have a relationship with this woman but he's now thinking about her and wants to find out more about her. Sinful action number two, verse three. So David went and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So now he finds out that she's married. Now he finds out that she has a husband. That increasingly puts her off limits. That makes it unacceptable, inappropriate for David to have a relationship to her. But he dismisses that. 
Sinful act number three. And David sent messengers and took her. So David brings her to himself. Sinful act number four. Verse four. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And there are a lot more sinful acts, but I'm going to stop there because there's four, which leads us to the act of committing uh, sexual intercourse with her. He, he committed adultery. But it wasn't when he laid with her that he committed adultery. It was all the way back to inquiring to find out more about her. At that point, he had an agenda. At that point, he had a desire. He did not act on that desire to its fullest extent, but he began to act on the desire. And the Word of God teaches us that it was even before he acted and had inquiry, it was the desire to make the inquiry that would end up with him committing adultery. That the problem was the desire. The desire. In God's eyes, David had committed adultery in his heart long before he actually went to bed with her. Long before he actually went to bed with with her. Had David turned his head upon seeing Bathsheba, if he walked out on that rooftop and looked, and there was Bathsheba taking a bath, and he looks and says, whoop, whoop, whoop. Wasn't expecting to see that. And he turns away and dismisses what he saw. David would be innocent. David would be guiltless. But he didn't. He gazed upon her. He looked at her. He admired her beauty. And he admired that beauty so much that he wanted to be with her. That was his sin. And he sinned at that point. Number two. Jesus depicts the egregiousness of the sin or the severity of the sin or the exceedingly sinfulness of the sin of lusting in one's heart. We might think that it is unfair or an overreaction to think about lustful thoughts in the same way that we think about an action. Certainly, Pastor, you're not telling me that to think about having a relationship to her was as bad as when he actually went to bed with her. Well, I'm telling you that that's what Jesus said. For notice verse 29. 
And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you than that one of your body parts perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus says that that lustful look is worthy of going to hell, which is consistent with what Jesus said to the disciples when he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. There, he says it negatively. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here, he says it positively. You are worthy of going to hell. You are worthy of going to hell. Thus, we should not dismiss such behavior as inconsequential. We should not become lackadaisical. We should not say it's no big deal. We should recognize such behavior as an offense against God, our spouse, or the one that we're lusting toward, all of that. We need to own it as the evil that it really is. Now I want to move to the third thought. And that is the remedy for this sin. The remedy for the sinful lust. What is the solution? The first thing that I want to point out to you is that our text does not provide it. The text doesn't tell us how to prevent it, doesn't tell us what to do if we've committed this sin. The point of the passage is to demonstrate that our understanding of the law doesn't go far enough, that the righteousness that God requires goes far, far greater than what the Pharisees ever taught or practiced. That's the point. The second point is, and that is so important that it makes the difference between heaven and hell. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds, describes the righteousness describes the Pharisees, you shall no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you do this, you are worthy of hell. But I want to talk about the solution. And the reason I want to talk about the solution is because of the way that verse 29 has been too often misunderstood. Is the solution the ripping out of your eye? Notice verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. So if you have a problem with lust, is Jesus saying to you, Gouge out your eye. And if you do that, you're not going to lust anymore. I don't believe Jesus is saying that. Jesus is saying, you need to be so concerned about this that you would be willing to gouge out your eye if that's what it took. But he's not offering this as a solution. That's important to understand. 
Because down through the church ages, there have been too many that have taken this for a solution. Origen, being one of them, the church father Origen, actually had himself castrated in order to try to deal with his lustful thoughts. Based on this passage in Matthew chapter 19 about better to be a eunuch for the kingdom of God's sake, that he actually had himself castrated as a way to try to deal with his sinful lust. Now, bear with me, because I think this is really important. I'm going I'm to try to demonstrate this from the text. Look at verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, your right eye, why your right eye? Your right eye is considered to be uh, your best eye, just as the right hand is one's best hand. Is gouging out your right eye going to keep you from even looking at a woman? You got a left eye, too. Jesus doesn't say, gouge out your eyes. He says, gouge out your right eye. That's how important this is. But it's not a solution to the problem. Jesus does not offer that as a solution to the problem. Let me ask you a very practical question. Do you think blind men are impervious to lust? I'm here to tell you they're not. Jesus is not giving this as a solution. He's giving it as an example of how important it is. Why do we need to know this? Because all too often, we equate the symptom with the cause. You see, it'd be easy for me to stand up here this morning and rant and rave against Playboy magazine, the internet, and movies. But that's not the cause of the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. And Jesus is concerned with the root. And it isn't enough to try to hide the symptoms. Jesus is addressing a people at a time when there was no Playboy magazine, there was no internet, and there were no movies. And Jesus does not hypothetically think about an issue that could be present in the year 2014. He's addressing an issue that is present with the people that are standing before him. Who don't have movies, who don't have the internet, and do not have Playboy, and they lust. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not condoning Playboy 
or impure movies or uh, pornographic websites. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is those are symptoms. You can get rid of all of that and you won't get rid of lust. And you need to know that. And I need to know that because we wrestle with lust. The answer has to be much deeper than that. The answer has to be much more thoughtful than that. The remedy is much more difficult than that. We can berate women on their immodesty. But it's a symptom, not a cause. In the Middle East, Arabic countries, you've seen pictures of women that are shrouded in material. The only thing that you see are eyes sticking out. Why everybody seen those pictures? Let me ask you. Do you think in Arab countries, men don't lust as a result of having the women in their society with nothing but eyes sticking out? I imagine some guy saying, wow, does she have pretty eyes? No. Those are symptoms. Not solutions. Now, I'm not naive. I understand we live in a sinful world where people are intentionally appealing to the most basic and perverse instincts that exist within us. I know that people are trying to motivate us to make decisions based on our sexual desires and arousal. I know that advertising uses sex. I know that people use sex. I know that there are people that are seeking to attract other people, seeking to arouse them. I know that. And I'm not condoning that. And I am not dismissing that. All I'm saying is, what Jesus is teaching is the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. The out there exists because the problem is in here. And the church, down through the ages and down through the Middle Ages, with its practice of asceticism and monasticism, where priests hid themselves behind walls and lived in little cell rooms with stone beds and all these things in order to overcome the lusts of the world discovered. Martin Luther discovered that when he lived in the monastery, he was not free from lust. You can't solve lust by solving what's out there. That doesn't condone, forgive, or remove the problem of what is out there. I'm just telling you, that's not 
the solution. The solution is in here. So how do I deal with what is in here? If our hearts were right, we would not be looking at Playboy. We would not be viewing pornography. We would not be looking at women inappropriately, no matter how they are dressed. If our hearts are not right, we could free the world from all of this. Women could dress very modestly, go back to the time of Jesus when there is no internet, movies, etc., and the problem would still be here. So what do we do with our hearts? Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Admittedly, I'm departing from our text because Jesus isn't addressing what the problem is. But I'm adding that to this dimension because so many have tried to take the gouging out of your eye as the solution. And I want to show you what the Bible gives us as the solution. In Psalm 51, notice, first of all, the inscription at the uh, top of the psalm. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. So here is a very practical psalm for us to be considering. We use David as an example of his committing the sin with Bathsheba and said that he sinned when he looked with intention upon her. At that point, he is now sinning, and then we saw the sinful acts. Notice the psalmist David's response. Uh, I don't have time to exegete this whole psalm, so I'm going to pick it up at verse 9. First, David seeks God's forgiveness. Verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. There are a number of different words in Psalm 51 for sin. Sin, in this context, are transgressions. It's going against the law of God. David did that. Iniquity is filth. It's dirt. It's that sense of feeling icky. So David has... A sense of guilt. He feels terrible, feels unclean. So he seeks God's forgiveness. That's step one. Whenever we lust, we should seek God's forgiveness. That's a part of not treating it lightly. That's understanding the grievousness of the situation. I shouldn't just say, well, everybody has a problem with this. We need to confess it. Number two, we should seek God's help in overcoming the sin. Notice verse 10. First statement, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a pure heart. David is asking God to trans, 
transform his sinful heart into a pure heart. And he uses the word create. Make. Often associated with make out of nothing. Bring to my heart what doesn't presently exist. And and, uh, David knew that it wasn't ever present. He didn't ask to be restored to the condition he was before he looked upon Bathsheba. He's asking for a different heart. So that if this were to happen again, he would act differently. And please notice he doesn't pray, keep women from taking baths in front of me. Because that's the symptom. It's not the solution. The solution is, give me, God, a clean heart. Cry out to God for deliverance. Ask God to transform your desires and your thoughts. Secondly, in seeking God's help, notice the next statement. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. So David, in saying renew a steadfast spirit, is not talking about a a spirit that was previous. He's not asking to go back to a time prior to his sin with Bathsheba. He's talking about this resolve now. Create in me a clean heart. Step one. Step two. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. In other words, David realized he could not pray a prayer that would cover him for eternity future. Oh, if only life were that simple. If only you could say, God created me a clean heart. That's done. No more problem with lust. Moving on. What's the next sin that I can conquer and become perfect in? No, it's not that easy. It starts there. It doesn't end there. So David prays that God would renew a steadfast spirit. That David would become unwavering in this commitment. And he understood that that had to be renewed constantly. So it's a way of life. It is a purpose, it is a decision that has to be made continually. I'm saying to you, that it ought to be a part of our prayer life every day. Lord, deliver me from lust. It ought to be a prayer that we pray for our kids. It ought to be a prayer that we pray for each other, for our leaders. It ought to be a prayer that you pray for me and I pray for you. Keep us from lust. Keep us from impure thoughts. Next, don't allow thoughts to germinate. 
There is a famous saying. It is so famous and so common that it's been attributed to a lot of different people. I've heard it attributed to Martin Luther. I've heard it attributed to Spurgeon. I've heard it attributed to uh, so many different people. Calvin. It's because they've all said it at a time or another. And that statement is this. You can't prevent a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent it from building a nest in your hair. Let me say that again. You can't prevent a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent it from building a nest in your hair. David couldn't stop the thought when he saw Bathsheba. Boom, he wasn't expecting it. Boom, there was the thought. But the problem is, what did he do with that thought? What did he do at that moment? And he decided to gaze and to satisfy his sexual desire rather than turn away. What do we do when we are convicted? We're seeing something unintentionally. If we're seeing it intentionally, we're already in trouble. Unintentionally. We see something. If immediately our thought is, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm moving away from that. Or we stand and gaze and let our minds engage in fantasy. We have sinned. So don't allow thoughts to germinate. So how can we do that? Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil heart brings forth what is evil. James says, from the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from one same opening both fresh and bitter water? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Jesus said, out of the fullness of the heart, man speaks. So, what are we doing with this sinful desire that resides in our hearts? Are we feeding it or are we starving it? Are we feeding it or are we starving it? Now it's going to look like I spoke out of both sides of my mouth because I'm going to say that, man, if you're looking at pornography, you're going to wrestle with this so much more. It's addictive. It's problematic. Root yourselves of it. But it's a symptom. It's not the cause. But you're promoting, you're feeding the desire. So we need to starve the desire. How do we starve the desire? 
Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, it was our call to worship this morning. Whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. What do you do with your idle time? What is entertainment for you? Feed the good, starve the evil. Don't spend your time fantasizing and thinking about things that are only going to lead to more sin and more misery and more heartache. Fantasize about good things. Fantasize about what's right. Men, if you're going to fantasize about a woman, fantasize about your wife. If you're going to think about the kind of spouse that you'd like to have, then say to yourself, what kind of husband do I need to be to have that kind of spouse? Make this a positive in your life. Think about things that are just. Think about things that are pure. Think about things that are lovely. Think about things that are of good report. Again, that's hard in our society. Because our society is trying to lead us down a path of impurity. And again, I'm not speaking out both sides of my mouth. I'm saying to you, recognize that there is evil in this world and there is an agenda and people are trying to create and to feed our sinful desires. So be wise. Just don't confuse the symptom with the cause. And then surround yourself with wholesome influences. 2 Timothy 2.22 Now flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those that call on the Lord from a pure heart. Man, can your friends make a difference. People who are dating, boy, the person you're dating makes a big difference. If only one person in that relationship is trying to guard their purity, you're in trouble. You need both people in the relationship to want to guard that purity. So that when one is weak, the other is strong, and when the other is strong, the other is weak. That's why I don't tell people, just date somebody that's a Christian. It starts there, it doesn't end there. Date someone who is a Christian that has high morals. High standards. Choose your friends wisely. The people you hang out with. The jokes they tell, the things that they say. It's not out there, it's in here. But what is out there can feed what's in here. And the good out there can starve the bad that's in here. You can't have at one and the same time a heart that is longing to know God better and at the same time have a heart that's desiring sinful lust. It can't be at the same time. It can be the same heart 
but not at the same time. So try more and more to focus one's ambition and desire to do what is honoring and pleasing in your life. And don't sit back and be satisfied with, well, I haven't done it yet. Root out what's in the heart. And if you do, you will never do it. That's the solution. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Uh, Lord, uh, so easy to speak about these things so smugly. But you are teaching us that the righteousness that you demand is beyond us. We are to recognize, O oh God, that we fall short. We are to recognize the need for forgiveness. So, Lord, help us to be willing to acknowledge this morning that we all need forgiveness in this area. May we not trivialize what we have done. May we not just brush it under the rug. May, may we not just do these things in secret. May we not think that it doesn't matter. Oh, Lord, forgive us. And help us to ask to be delivered. Create in us clean hearts. And Lord, we know that means there needs to be a renewed and steadfast spirit, that we we pray for this continually, that we, we long for it. And Lord, we know that we are not going to be sinless, but may that never ever be an excuse for us in our sin. But oh Lord, help us to hate it. Help us to despise it. Help us to cry out to you for deliverance. That we really want to be freed from it. And oh Lord, give us the strength. Give us the power. May your spirit work mightily with us. And if we fail, may we come quickly seeking forgiveness again. Seeking the clean heart. Seeking a steadfast spirit. And in so doing, Lord, may we starve the sin within us and grow the purity of heart and mind that your spirit provides. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.